Hi, welcome to another episode of the Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association podcast, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology Program at the University of Louisville. Today, I'm here with Dr. Sheila Schuster, a clinical psychologist and leader of the Kentucky Mental Health Coalition. In addition to these roles, Dr. Schuster was the first executive director of KPA and remains highly involved in the organization through leadership, advocacy, and training. Dr. Schuster has worked tirelessly to improve the availability and quality of health and mental health care in Kentucky, and it is truly a privilege to have her join us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here, Dr. Schuster. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. We're going to start out with some more general, broad questions just around your background and what do you to become a psychologist. So if you could just start out by telling me a little bit about what attracted you to the field of psychology. Um, I grew up in a, a family of six. I was the second oldest, and both of my parents were uh, master's level social workers. So I was predisposed to thinking about getting into a helping profession, I think. I originally started in college in the pre-med track, um, and two things happened. One was that um, I never got used to the side of blood, which I thought was probably not a good thing if one was going to go into medicine. Um, and the second thing was that uh, organic chemistry and I did not do so well together. So I um, actually had an interview with the dean of the medical school at St. Louis University, and this is um, 1964, and he said, uh, out of 100 students that we'll take into our first year medical school um, class, we'll have one woman. And I said, how come only one? And he said, because you all get married and have babies and don't practice medicine. And so, so uh, that was discouraging. So all of those factors kind of came together, and I decided to shift to something and psychology was just very appealing to me. So I actually, to stay with my classmates, I took um, both semesters of general psych in summer school. Unfortunately, the timing was that I took the second semester before they taught the first semester. And I took an abnormal class all in that first summer school session so that I could join right in with my junior year. So I've never looked back, and I've always been just uh, delighted to be a psychologist. I think um, psychology is probably the most flexible kind of background that one can have because you can go in so many different directions. And I think there are even more directions now as the world develops and as psychology develops. So it's been a wonderful place to be. Um, and I'm glad that I was not struggling with my... Uh, <laughs> getting upset with blood and, and other things. So it's been, it's been a great choice for me, I think. Yeah, I love your point about the flexibility with psychology. And I feel like your career has really embodied that flexibility and kind of diversity of, of things you can accomplish. Yeah, I really thought I would be a faculty person. I mean, when I got into graduate school and I started at uh, Purdue and had my master's and then I went to New York City and lived with a couple of my ex-college roommates and uh, lived in the big city and worked at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and their children's evaluation clinic and, you know, lived in Manhattan and uh, just had a, a ball for two years um, and then got wooed back to uh, graduate school um, by uh, reconnecting with a guy that I had gone to undergraduate school with who was from Louisville. 
and came um, back to finish my doctorate at uh, UofL. And I really thought that uh, I would eventually end up in teaching, and I have done a good bit of teaching along the way, but uh, working directly with kids and families really lit my fire. And so I spent 27 years as a child psychologist in Louisville, dabbled in, um, was one of the first psychologists to do court-ordered evaluations for custody and visitation, which is where some of my gray hair has come from. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of work that, as a colleague said, it makes your stomach hurt because there's no right answer and you're dealing with, um, uh, you know, warring parents with the kids caught in the middle. So it, it really is hard on you, but I always tried to come at it from the best interest of the child and wrote some articles about it at the time and did a lot of um, uh, teaching psychologists about the best way to do it, not to come in on one side or the other, but to come in where you would be appointed by the court to see all sides. And I did that for about 10 years as part of my clinical practice. And then I just really got worn out with it. It's very stressful. And people are very upset afterwards. I actually had some threats from people who didn't feel like my report gave them what they wanted. So felt like a good time to get out of that. Yeah, I imagine that would be very um, rewarding but exhausting work. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You've had so many different interesting experiences. What has your favorite part of being a psychologist been? I guess there's two things. Uh, one is that, um, and I don't remember ever learning this in graduate school, but if you stay working with kids, which is fairly unusual, you know, most psychologists that start out with kids, as their own kids grow up or as they get older, they start migrating to adolescents and then young adults and they don't want to see kids. And I always just saw kids. I didn't see adults unless they were connected with a child by the, by the hip. Uh, you know, parents, grandparents, guardians, school people, court people. Um, and um, I think what happens if you really see kids is that you develop a kind of um, lifespan connection with those families so that you see a child around a crisis or some question that the parents have early on. And then as continuing issues come up, they come back to you, kind of like being the pediatrician or the family physician or nurse practitioner. So I love that. I love seeing the kids. Um, and it helped to have known them back when. And I still run into people, um, you know, who are now adults saying, well, Dr. Schuster, do you remember me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, well, give me a hint. What was your name? And, you know, I might have seen them when they were in second grade. Wow. And so they had some ongoing connections. So I love that kind of family practice model, which is not something that you learn in graduate school, but I think it's very comfortable. I once had a, a gentleman call me and say, can I just put you on retainer? That, that was a fascinating idea. He was an attorney and he said, I've got four boys, you know, they're one, two, three, four, whatever. He said, I know we're going to have issues. So why wouldn't I just have you on call on retainer, which I thought was just, and it's kind of that model. So it's a developmental clinical you know, um, family practice kind of model. So I love that. That was one of the things. And I think the other was that I got exposed to Frankfurt very early on. So I got my degree in 1973, um, went into private practice. And at that time, Hannah, there were no 
um, private practitioners, full-time private practitioners in the city of Louisville. Wow. Yeah. The people that were in private practice all did it on the side on Saturdays and evenings. You know, there was just not the market there. So um, several of my classmates from U of L and I set up a group practice and we were full-time clinicians and people were astonished, I guess. Mm -hmm. But one of the first experiences I had was going to Frankfurt in 1978 as a uh, volunteer with Mental Health America and to testify. And uh, it was not a very successful experience. Uh, the bill did not pass out of committee. And I guess I could have walked away from the experience thinking, well, I'll never do that again. But instead, I just got kind of fascinated uh, with it. So I think those two kinds of experiences, and they were going on simultaneously. You know, for a long time, I was doing my work in Frankfurt and then coming back and seeing kids after school or scheduling uh, evaluations when I wasn't in Frankfurt. So I was balancing those two worlds, which I always called the kind of micro and the macro world. You know, and it was helpful to have both. And there came a time when I, um, got busier in Frankfurt and got older and, you know, it was harder to meet the needs of my clients. And so after 27 years, I closed my practice in 2000, but I still always miss those experiences with the kids and the families and the kind of real world experiences. So what was the catalyst for you getting involved in Frankfurt? I'm not, I feel like that's not common for a psychologist to have a private practice then I'll say, hey, I also want to get involved in mental health advocacy. That's well, two things happened. One was that I was a volunteer um, with mental health, the Mental Health Association, and they had a bill, um, you know, in retrospect, it was a tiny little bill. It was to require the insurers to offer what they call a rider or an a, additional plan that would cover mental health because of, in those days, in the 70s, very few plans had much coverage at all for mental illness, and almost none had anything for what they called then chemical dependency, which was probably alcoholism and nothing else. And so um, they called me and they said, we just think it would be really good if a professional went up and testified. And I said, sure. I mean, I didn't even know how to get to Frankfurt. I was not from here. I'd never been to Frankfurt. So um, somebody said, here's how, <clears throat> excuse me, here's how you get there. And, you know, there'll be a committee meeting and so forth. So I did all this research and wrote out this testimony and so forth. And I assumed that when I got to the hearing room that I would be testifying against what I call the blue suits, the guys from uh, Humana and Anthem and United and so forth who make a bazillion dollars. And I got to the hearing room a little early and I didn't see any blue suits, but I saw a lot of people in kind of everyday working clothes actually. And they were all up at the table talking to legislators. And I didn't know any of the legislators. I, you know, I didn't know their names. I didn't know where they were from or anything. So they called the bill and they always have the pro side go first. And I went up and introduced myself as Dr. Schuster, a licensed psychologist. And I went through reams of data and all this reason why people should have the ability to buy this insurance and so forth. And there were, um, I don't think any questions asked. I was the only one that testified. And then they called for the uh, con side, if you will. And three or four of these guys who were dressed really in farm clothes or in kind of everyday working, working clothes came up to the table 
And they obviously all knew the senators. They were calling the senators by their first names and the senators were greeting them. So obviously they, they you know, had done their homework. They were from the regions that these senators represented. And each one of them had the same story, which is, you know, I'm Joe Blow, I run an auto mechanic shop in, you know, rural Kentucky. And my insurance agent said that my premiums will go up, you know, a million dollars a month if this bill passes. Or another one said, um, you know, I own an auto dealership in so-and-so rural Kentucky. And my insurance agent said that um, if this passes that, um, I won't be able to afford insurance for my employees. So that was the theme all the way through. And I actually um, have repressed, I'm sure they call the vote because they always call a vote on the bill. I have repressed that completely because I think there was not a single yes vote for the bill. So we were shut out completely. And as I say, I, you know, I could have walked away and thought, well, you know, I'll never do that again. But instead, I walked away thinking, this is really fascinating. <laughs> you know, how do, how do you get to these people that are making these decisions? And it was a little bit scary to think about um, these people who I didn't know who were up there. And who did they listen to? And how did they make the decisions they were making? And when it came to the practice of psychology, they were the ones making the law about who could call themselves psychologists and uh, what your scope of practice is and so forth. So I just, you know, this was all kind of percolating in the back of my mind. And then in um, 1980, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Judy Worrell from uh, UK Counseling Psych Program had just been elected president of KPA. And she called me and said, um, would you like to be the chair of the KPA Legislative Committee? And I was thrilled and honored and kind of blown away that she would pick somebody who was really not known. I mean, I had joined KPA from the very first when I was a student at U of L, but had not been real active and so forth. And somebody must have said to her, I think she always been to Frankfurt once. <laughs> so she would make a good chair of the Legislative Committee. So I was like, well, sure. And I said, um, what are our issues? And she said, well, you know, we understand that the master's folks are really unhappy about having to be supervised for life. And uh, so there may, you know, we don't know, but there may be something there. Well, it turned out that there was six years worth of fighting within the association between the master's and the doctoral folks about uh, supervision and whether doctoral level was really going to be the entry level for psychology. And interestingly, APA came down to consult, and their, um, their advice was, we'll redo your licensing law and just cut out all the master's people, which is what they had done in Ohio and in other states. They wanted, APA wanted the profession to be pure and to be doctoral only. And I said, no. Um, you know, they've been in our law since 1948. We have the third oldest licensure law of uh, any psychology board. Uh, they're the ones that are out in the rural areas delivering services where we don't have any doctoral people. We have all the regional universities have programs to produce master's level. And I said, I, I worked as a master's level psychologist in New York City and 
I didn't know as much as the doctoral people, but I knew some stuff and I think I was helpful and effective. And so I just said, we're not gonna do that. And so I uh, embarked on a kind of one woman, uh, Don Quixote uh, kind of <laughs> uh, pursuit of the, the, the right, the, the truth and the, and the just. Um, and actually, um, the master's people had not been treated well. They had had always an opportunity to earn what they called autonomous functioning. And the licensure board without any notice or any warning cut off that and just left people out there. Now, many of them had never sought it, but once they couldn't seek it, you could imagine how unhappy they were. So I literally traveled all over the state and met with master's people and doctoral people and uh, faculty people and community mental health center people because they hired a lot of psychologists in those days, both doctoral and masters. And um, we finally passed a licensure revision in 1986. In those days, Hannah, the uh, legislature only met once every two years. So it took quite a while if you were trying to get something passed. So we failed in 80 and we failed in 82 and we failed in 84. So you had to wait two weeks, two years. And we finally passed the licensure revision in 1986 that opened the door again for master's level autonomous functioning for a time limited period. And then we went back and opened it to where it is now, which is in, you know, it's indefinitely open uh, after five years of supervision and passing the triple P and those kinds of things. So that took a lot of time and effort. Uh, and I did it all as a, a volunteer. Um, I just got, you know, I just got kind of fixated on fixing this problem because I was really concerned about psychology really looking bad in front of the legislators because we were fighting among ourselves and they really didn't have a dog in that fight, quite frankly, and they hate those kind of turf battles and they particularly hate them when they're within the same profession as I found out. So. I was just determined. I thought it was really bad for psychology in the state to have this ongoing war. And I wanted to come up with something that was fair and gave them an opportunity to get autonomous functioning and so forth. And then I was offered, um, KPA had never had an executive director. They had always just moved the office wherever the president was. And so they had gotten a grant from APA. Um, and the leadership at KPA decided they wanted an executive director and they essentially wrote the job description. So I was the only one that <laughs> could fill it because one of the requirements was somebody who had some legislative experience. And I, aside from Judy Morrell, who was a role model for me, because she used to go and testify as an expert witness in Frankfurt around date rape and domestic violence and some of her research in those areas. Um, you know, there were very few legis uh, psychologists who had ever been to Frankfurt or had any experience. So, and once I took that position in 1989, then that became part of the executive director position. So then from, from 1989 to 2000, I juggled a little bit of private practice, a halftime position with KPA that included being in Frankfurt during the sessions. So I spent a lot of time on the road there's a, a lot of juggling. A lot of, a lot of juggling. And in 2000, finally, I thought, you know, I just want to do full-time advocacy. And that was the year that the voters of Kentucky decided to do annual sessions. 
my, my grand plan had been I'll ease into retirement by doing it, doing only advocacy and I'll only have to work every other year because they were only going to meet yeah. every other year, except that once I closed out my practice and gave up the KPA executive director position, the people of Kentucky decided they should meet every year. So, and I haven't retired yet. KPA actually threw me a wonderful retirement party about, um, wow, it's probably been five years, six years, roasted me, had my son who's a professional artist do a wonderful uh, painting of one of my advocacy rallies in Frankfurt and so forth. And after it was all over, I got cold feet and decided I wasn't finished with the work I thought I needed to do. So I, <laughs> I said, well, will you be upset if I don't retire? So it's been kind of an ongoing joke that I, one of these days will retire. I but not that. yet. That's it. Well, we definitely need more work in advocacy. So I'm grateful to have you keep to continue fighting, fighting that fight. And thinking about having sessions that meet every other year, how do you maintain motivation when even the opportunity for change is two years away? It's very, very hard. Um, and what happens is, and what happened with the master's issue was that we would work out a compromise during one of the intervening years. And then by the time that another year passed and we were getting ready to go to the session, people would have changed, people would have changed their mind, the, the, the whole thing would have fallen apart, so you'd have to go back and, and rebuild it. I mean, it, it, really, it really did get to be quite difficult. Somewhere in that time frame, maybe um, 1984, I convinced KPA that they should um, hire somebody to be a lobbyist for them because we had never had a lobbyist. And so they um, hired a, a gentleman that I had recommended who did a lot of lobbying on environmental issues actually. And it created quite a firestorm within the association and a lot of our academic members left KPA because we did that. You know, there's always been a, a sense that if you contribute to campaigns or you pay a lobbyist that you're doing, you know, it's kind of dirty politics and people didn't want their dues going to that. And so we had this um, very unfortunate rift. And we had a lot of academics. We've always had a lot of academics interested in KPA, more so than most other state associations. So that was a painful, uh, painful time for me because I had worked with many of these academicians and uh, they went to the Kentucky um, uh, Society of um, Science, I guess, KSA, Kentucky Science Association or Academy. And um, they stayed away for, I don't know, six to eight years maybe, and then we wooed them back. And so they're back in the fold, but that was, that was very painful. And it just shows you how difficult the um, advocacy work is because it gets very political, whether your issues are political or not, the process is political. And so when you, hire a lobbyist, uh, which I am now a registered lobbyist. And, you know, I always tell the story that my mom went to her grave thinking, where did I go wrong? She was always so proud of me as a doctoral level clinical psychologist. And then when I told her I was a lobbyist, she was not happy. Um, although my dad was very involved in politics, so I got some of that from him. He was the mayor of our little town in oh, wow. Missouri and had gone to the state legislature around um, 
licensure for social workers in Missouri. So I kind of grew up in that sense that, you know, the legislature was something that you did um, to get good things to happen. Um, but keeping, uh, keeping people involved is really, really hard. So in those early years, I was really pretty much a one woman show. It's very different now. You know, I've really broadened my horizon in terms of uh, educating people about advocacy and creating coalitions and um, getting more psychologists to think of themselves always as advocates, whether they go to Frankfurt or not. I think that all psychologists need to see themselves as advocates for their patients mm -hmm. and for the better services and those kinds of things. But it's very hard to keep that um, passion up because I really think the most effective advocacy is is passionate advocacy. You know, you have that fire in your belly, whatever the issue is, and that's what keeps you going. Um, and it's hard to keep that stoked over time. And, you know, I've had a couple of issues that it's taken us five years to pass the bill, even when they're meeting every year. So, you know, the, the people change, the legislators change, and you keep coming back and getting the same answer, and you really wonder after a while, you know, is it worth pursuing? And then you, you know, finally break through and, and pass the legislation. So then you have a huge celebration when that happens. And, and rightly so. How do, you, how do you go about getting other people committed? Because you say it's hard to, to get people that engaged. Is it education or what kind of strategies do you have for that? Well, I think the strategies within KPA have been different than uh, with the uh, Mental Health Coalition which is a much broader group. So within KPA, it's been uh, newsletter articles and uh, at least um, an annual um, training that I do at convention time about advocacy. And uh, it's leading by example, I guess, to get people thinking in terms of, oh, I really do have a voice. And what I used to do, if I knew I had a legislator I needed to get to, I would find out what psychologists lived in that district, and I would put the press on them one-on-one, -on -one, quite frankly. I mean, I still have a friend who taught it. has never forgiven me for sending him into the jaws of a, a very heated debate with one of the legislators. And, uh, you know, he laughs about it now, but he said, you know, I could have cheerfully strung you out, Sheila. Um, I, I wasn't prepared for that. And I said, obviously, I didn't know it was going to turn out like that, or I wouldn't have sent you into that. But, you know, occasionally that happened. But what I have found, Anna, is that if, if people have even a neutral experience, much less a positive experience in their first foray or their first or second foray into the legislative waters, you know, they've testified or they've uh, put in a call and they've gotten a response or they have asked for a meeting and a legislator has said yes. It so empowers people. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, a little bit of intermittent, intermittent reinforcement. <laughs> and I think people assume that the legislators are not going to listen to them and not want to meet with them and that kind of thing. And that's really not true, at, uh, particularly at the local level. You know, all politics are local. That's what they always say, and it really is true. So if you think about, we have 100 House members, so they each represent about 40,000 Kentuckians. They each want to run every two years, or they want to run for a different office. 
So as a constituent, as a, particularly as a registered voter, you have a tremendous amount of power with that legislator, much more so than I do. I may know them, but I can only vote for my House member and my senator. So you have a tremendous amount of power. And I think people really underestimate that. And so my, my job is to have them have an experience where they can meet with a legislator or be in touch with a legislator or have a legislator vote the right way on a bill so that they can thank the legislator and, and get a relationship going. Because that's really what it's all about. I can that definitely... was a hard, hard lesson to learn, quite frankly. Yeah, no, I can I can definitely attest to the value of the intermittent reinforcement. I know going to um, Psychology Day earlier this year, which I mean, it feels like it was forever ago, but right. it was so valuable and so cool to get to sit down with legislators and talk about the different bills and our perspectives on things and, and having them actually listen and be a real person, right. I think is is pretty unique and pretty cool experience to have. Yeah, and when I do my training in Frankfurt, I always bring in uh, at least two legislators to talk to folks. I try to get somebody from the House and somebody from the Senate and somebody who's a D and somebody who's an R and, you know, hopefully a male and a female. I try to balance all those things. But even giving people in the audience an opportunity to ask whatever questions they want and have people interact with them. And they kind of, um, it, it kind of... Um, makes puts people at ease so that they don't have that roadblock in their mind that says, oh, well, they're up here and I'm down here and they're not going to want to listen to me. And I always say to people, if you're doctor somebody, whether you're doctor level psychologist or a physician or a DNP nurse practitioner, that carries some weight in Frankfurt. Use it, you know. <laughs> I don't, I don't cling to that, uh, you know, professional title much, but when I testify or when I first am meeting a legislator, I use it. And I've kept my license all these years, even though I haven't practiced clinically since 2000, so that I can open every testimony I give by saying I'm a licensed psychologist. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I may be talking about general mental health and not specifically about psychology in the testimony but I want them to know I have a credential as a psychologist and that psychology is at the table. So that's very important to me. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that before um, with kind of the, the importance of licensure and in, in even um, right. the legislative setting. Yeah. Well, and they, they tend to be confused. I mean, I, even after all these years, so I've been going up there every session since 1978. So I'm on my 40th second year, um, you know, they still get confused. And some of them will say to me, now, you're, you're a psychiatrist, you're a psychologist, you know, what's the difference, you know, that kind of thing. But what about the social workers, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, I will say this, Hannah, and this is kind of my um, public health view of the world. And I've gotten some criticism over the years, uh, not a lot, but you know, some feedback from psychologists who say, well, you, you lobby for mental health in general and not specifically for psychology. And I say, yeah, that's true, because I think that's where the services are. I mean, I always identify myself. And if there are issues that are particular, and you better believe I'm going to make sure that psychologists are included and any legislation around reimbursement or naming them as uh, experts or whatever the issues are. But I think we have to, um, 
let's advocate for the greater good. We have to see the big picture. And psychology is a part of that, but it's not the end all and be all. We can't be all that people need when they have a mental health or substance use disorder or acquired brain injury or a developmental intellectual disability, whatever those issues are. We can't be the only one that's out there. So we have to work hand in hand. So I guess I'm as proud of my reputation as, as, of being the uh, grandmother or the godmother of all coalitions. So I have built numerous coalitions, um, but probably the one that's, uh, that I use the most is the Kentucky Mental Health Coalition. And it is 38 years old and about 80 organizations. So all of the professional associations belong. Very important to me that the psychiatrists and nurses and the social workers and the counselors and the uh, MFTs and the alcohol and drug counselors all are part of that, as well as the community mental health centers and some of the freestanding hospitals, um, some of the clinics, um, and then all the NAMI groups, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and some of the uh, peer-run consumer groups as well, so that we you know, we always say we bring the, the um, perspective of the consumer and family member advocate and provider to the table. And so early on, we decided that we would not deal with licensure issues or reimbursement issues to specific professions within the coalition. But we don't take a position because that, there was no way we were going to hold together as different groups ended up fighting for their piece of the pie. But we've been very successful at having a, a legislative priority list and trying to get everybody on board so that they're all singing out of the same hymnal. And, um, you know, psychology's uh, been at the forefront because I've been at the forefront of that coalition. So nothing bad is going to happen to psychology as long as I'm <laughs> leading the, the mental health coalition. But the advocacy is, is much broader. And it's actually... If I might be candid, I, you know, over the years I've had my disagreements with APA because I think there are times when their advocacy has been so specific to psychology that they've not seen the forest from the trees kind of thing. They've not really weighed in on the big picture. And I think that's changing in the last couple of years. I'm really glad to see it. You know, I think uh, they've changed their stance on the masters in psychology in part because of a workforce issue and you know in part of in part because they don't want to disenfranchise people that have been trained in the psychology science and profession so you know i think uh, they come around to my way of thinking is how i like to think about it but they may not see it that way but i feel it that way yeah so thinking about sea changes like that you've you've had the opportunity to see a lot of those things and what do you think will come from COVID-19 from a mental health policy perspective, but also from a, a perspective of practice? You know, it's an interesting question. And before we got into the uh, racial trauma and the protests and so forth, I was telling legislators and, and um, discussing with our, our KPA leadership and so forth, you know, I think we're gonna see a second pandemic and that's going to be around behavioral health. So we use that term to talk about mental health and substance use disorder. So we know that um, an increasing number of people are seeking services through telehealth. 
We know that the uh, calls to the suicide hotlines uh, nationally and in the state are up. We know that opioid uh, overdose deaths are up, unfortunately. Um, and I think we haven't begun to experience the PTSD that our frontline workers, our uh, nurses and physicians and respiratory therapists and uh, hospital personnel and the EMTs and so forth. I mean, I think they're still working so hard that they haven't lifted up their heads to really be in touch with how they're feeling. So I think we're gonna be dealing with this for the next five or six years. Um, and then add to that, because it's happening at the same time, all that's been unearthed with the racial trauma, the protests, the um, really beginning to come to terms with years and years and years and years and years of um, horrible treatment of our black and brown uh, fellow Americans, but also in other countries and so forth. And I think it's not, um, you know, I think the, the police incidents have brought it to light, but it certainly is much deeper than that, much broader than that. Um, we're very fortunate in KPA to have Stephen Nifley and uh, Candace Hargens and people that are doing research and doing teaching around this. We issued a very strong um, statement, I think, from KPA. We've tried to put resources on the website for people. I think those are all leadership activities for us to take. I think we need to be um, out there talking uh, and having those uncomfortable um, discussions. You know, um, our governor has um, been very open about the disparities, but again, using the public health model, how long has it been since we last really looked at the disparities in access to mental health? to physical health, to um, equal education. I mean, there are so many disparities um, and so many uh, wounded and terrified people. And on a personal note, my son-in-law is a black man, uh, an immigrant from Guyana, South America. So he has the kind of double whammy of coming to a country where, from a country where he had been in the majority to a city, Louisville, where he's very much in the minority. And then when he opens his mouth and speaks in this beautiful uh, Caribbean accent, he gets either treated as, well, you're not one of us. You know, you're not African-American, you don't know our history, or well, you're still a black man. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult role. And I have two beautiful biracial granddaughters. So it gets very personal in terms of how we begin to resolve um, these issues. And I think unless we're willing to work at it at all levels, and I think psychology, again, could really be in a leadership role and hopefully is in a leadership role. So I guess I, I can't talk just about the COVID without talking also about that confluence, unfortunately, um, with the racial uh, trauma and the racial inequities. I think our work as psychologists is going to be cut out for the next generation, two generations. And I think we have to be prepared to um, look at the data. We're very good at that. And I don't know that we've always gathered the data or to cause other people to gather the data. You know, until people said to the governor or he noticed, somebody noticed, and then he started reporting, what is the racial 
you know, inequity here with COVID. I know for my daughter who is a um, heads up the refugee and immigrant program for the Family Health Center and they're doing the COVID testing and they're finding their brown community uh, of folks is testing at a much, much higher rate for positive COVID and living in uh, housing with many more people so that the spread is greater and all of those issues, I think we really need to uh, acknowledge what the inequities have been. And I think, you know, one of our leadership roles ought to be around how do we reach out and start um, a pipeline of brown and black uh, and Asian um, high school students, college students to get interested in, in psychology and start that pipeline. Uh, I don't know that that's the first place that students of color think about going, but I think, and, you know, the stigma around mental health is always there. Um, but I think we really need to do some outreach, at, at least at the high school level and certainly at the college level to really start targeting um, students of color and getting them interested, whether it's psychology or social work or counseling or psychiatry or whatever the field is, but to really get them thinking in terms of the incredible power they could have, the incredible role they could play as a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's such a good point. I spoke with um, Dr. Nifley in an earlier podcast and he um, shared that he's the only black male child psychologist in the state that he is aware of, at least in the Louisville area. And to hear that, it's especially in a time where there's so much racial trauma, I think it's it, it's a right. sign that things really need to change. People deserve to have therapists who they can confide in, who they feel comfortable with. and um, Somebody so. that looks like them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been, uh, I think, a huge problem. And we've tried over the years to hold on to graduate students of color and not let them get out of town, but they very often, you know, have an opportunity to go wherever they want to go and so forth and to have some opportunities that couldn't be matched financially and otherwise here. But I think we have to keep working at that for sure. We have a, a long way to go. But... Yes, we do have a very long way to go. But people are talking about it uh, more. I think we need to move beyond talk to the next steps and, and really see some things and keep the talk alive while we're figuring out what those next steps need to be. My concern is that it will be that blip like we get with gun control, you know, after the elementary school shooting several years ago and everybody gets bummed out and then nothing happens and then we just cannot afford. And I think that's why the protesters are continuing to protest every day because they've experienced that. And they really, really are committed to not letting that happen. Yeah, thinking from a policy perspective, what do you think are some of the best ways people can get involved to or to or take action now? You know, it depends on what the what the issue is. I think as we've talked about the um, the racial um, issue, I think I think people and we've had some discussions about uh, people feeling like do they need to be at the protests to show their support. The complication of COVID is very difficult uh, during this time. What are those other ways? And, and I think we're seeing, um, particularly in the faith community, um, uh, there was one uh, just last night, uh, yesterday afternoon in, in Louisville, where a church just stood along Bardstown Road with their signs 
and so forth and had their families out there and has asked people to honk just as a way of saying we stand here in solidarity with our black and brown uh, brothers and sisters and uh, we want to keep the dialogue alive so i think there are some uh, issues like that i think um, uh, there are ways to get involved in terms of you know some of the discussion about how should our funding be spent um, you know um, we have known that the police are being called on uh, to do things that they're not trained to do. We've tried to do the CIT training, the crisis intervention training with police to get them ready for situations with mentally ill folks to de-escalate and get them to help and not to jail. But not all of the, the police have had that. Um, when you have systemic poverty, is the root of so many of these issues, uh, poor health, poor education, uh, hopelessness, and then you put on top of it a pandemic uh, where people have lost their jobs, are not sure that they're gonna get any help from the government, whatever the government is. Um, so there certainly are ways for people to uh, donate and, and do those kinds of things. I would hope that people would uh, continue to be involved through KPA at our various town hall meetings. Uh, we're gonna have one um, um, shortly about um, getting kids ready to go back to school, which is a huge issue in the days of COVID. Um, what, what do we all need to know to be helpful, uh, whether in clinical work or in terms of um, school-based decision-making councils and other ways that people are involved in their local schools? How do we help um, uh, kids and families and teachers feel like they're supported? And what are some of those ways that we can be helpful and uh, you know, I'm a big believer. I, I probably have given, I don't know, Hannah, 500, 700 PTA talks in my life. Wow. If I used to talk to PTAs all the time and parent groups because my, my feeling was that if I, could, if I could reach one parent out of this group of whatever was there to better understand their child or to see the child's behavior a little differently, either, either in terms of, you know, I really need to get this looked at or... I need to not take this so personally and get into a, a war with my child, that it was well worth doing that. So there are lots of avenues, I think. Um, you know, KPA said a good job of putting together uh, resource materials, and we're asking members to send us uh, resources that they've either prepared themselves or are aware of, both on the racial trauma issues as well as the COVID-19 issues. And people need that. People are hungry for information. I think in both of those areas. Um, so those are some of the ways. I think if people are interested in the public policy issues that we're going to be dealing with in the uh, legislative session, uh, you know, we have an advocacy committee. Um, people know where to find me if they want to get involved. We're going to be getting out. We're going to be concentrating on the importance of the election in November. You know, elections do have consequences, and there are um, 65 House seats and 12 Senate seats that are going to be on the ballot in just the Kentucky legislature. So, um, and the newsletter's coming out with my uh, imploring people to get involved, to reach out and find out who's running, uh, to offer to do yard signs or to host just a, a meet and greet for the person, even virtually. There's a lot of those going on right now. 
um, so that people can identify psychologists as movers and shakers, quite frankly, as people that are leaders in, um, in thought and in action. So those are some of the ways that I, I think, you know, uh, people can get involved. And I, people can get involved at the local level. You know, you don't have to go to Frankfurt, but there are a lot of people that get involved at the Metro Council level. In other words, your state government level or even involved in their community uh, organizations. People get involved in, in leadership with the League of Women Voters, for instance, or Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, or any number of groups. And I think those are good ways to educate people about psychology issues. That's how we got psychology really in the mix when we were doing healthcare reform back in the 90s. And it was a hodgepodge group of employers and uh, Community Farm Alliance and the Catholic Conference and just a, a weird assortment of people. And I started talking to people about the fact that there was discrimination in insurance coverage against mental health. And out of that came our very successful um, parity legislation that we did in 2000, uh, which quite frankly was, I guess, the high point, one of the high points of my career because it was the original David versus Goliath. It was this little hodgepodge of mental health advocates going up against all of the insurance companies. And they have unlimited resources. And people said, you, you can't do it. And I said, we're gonna do it. And our uh, secret weapon was that we identified for the first time a consumer of mental health services whose story was so perfect for that fight and we had never had a consumer come to Frankfurt to testify before. And when she told her story, um, you know, people really listened. They had never heard that story, uh, a story of somebody who was put out of the hospital on three different occasions because her insurance policy said you only get five days of hospitalization, whether you're ready to be discharged or not. And we passed that legislation. And, people absolutely said that we couldn't do it. So we know that, you know, uh, the individual voices and the collective voices really can be successful. And we had uh, uh, lots of celebrations. The Schuster rule is that you celebrate any good thing that happens in Frankfurt. <laughs> I love that. So, so if you get a, assigned to the right committee, you have a little celebration. If you go out of committee, you have a, a little bit bigger celebration. And, um, so we've had some fun times. You got, you know, you got to engage people. You've got to keep them pumped up and and make it worthwhile for them and for them to feel like they really can play a role. So one of the things we do is we wear red. That's our mental health color in Frankfurt. So that's why I wore my red today. It's also the U of L color. That's great. It's also the U of L color. I have to be careful when the UK legislators to say this is not, you know, U of L. But it's um, it's impressive. And we use that that color to say, and I, I've been known to go up to legislators who have a red tie on and say, thank you for supporting mental health. And say, what are you talking about, Sheila? And I'll say, well, red's our color, you know. So it's a way of uh, swelling the numbers in a sense, um, but it also uh, makes it fun. I love that. So zooming out to the bigger picture, what type of impact do you hope to make on advocacy in the state of Kentucky? My number one goal, and we are not there yet, is to uh, get rid of stigma. I think that psychologists and mental health professionals in general don't think enough about how much stigma is actually still out there. Mm -hmm. and we know that only 
10 or 20% of people who have a diagnosable condition ever actually seek help. And some of that may be financial and some of that may be for other reasons, but stigma is alive and well. And it's just, um, uh, it's a huge, it's a huge barrier. So I would like to think that, um, you know, when I finally do retire, uh, that at least more people in Frankfurt, more policymakers, more newspapers are um, thinking thoughtfully about mental illness, not blaming every mass shooting on the mentally ill, not using crazy terms about everything, um, not making fun of, uh, as, as unfortunately our president has done, of somebody who has a disability uh, and that kind of thing. But the stigma is, is alive and well, and, and you see it um, particularly in rural Kentucky, and you see it in the African-American community. So it's a double whammy, uh, particularly with the racial trauma, um, to get people thinking about it really is okay to reach out for help. And so, you know, the self-help books and so forth, actually the celebrities that come forward, when Rosie O'Donnell years ago came forward and talked about being depressed, there was a huge run on people seeking help because it was okay. There's actually been more of that around substance use disorders in some ways because the celebrities and the sports people tend to go that direction. I would say that probably a good number of them are self-medicating to their anxiety, to their depression and so forth, because we know that the two go hand in hand. But, uh, you know, stigma is still the... I think the biggest problem that we've got, and it's hard, you can't legislate it out of existence. So you have to, and, and one of the ways that I try to uh, fight it is to bring people who have mental health issues, substance use issues to Frankfurt to talk to legislators, to testify, to be in the rotunda, what we call putting a face on the problem, so that I testify as little as necessary and we have the people that are living with it, either the consumers or the family members, which is where the NAMI groups in particular are so effective when they tell that story. When we passed Tim's law finally for assisted outpatient treatment, it took us five years. It was that mother's story of the only way she could get her son who had paranoid schizophrenia to take his medication was to take out a mental inquest warrant and have the sheriff come and take him away in the back of the sheriff's car in handcuffs to Eastern State Hospital, which at that time was the second oldest psych hospital in um, the country. It looked like something out of Transylvania. I mean, it, you know, it was terrible. And he would get back on his medication and then he would do better and then he would fall off his medication. Uh, he had anosognosia, so he never believed that there was anything wrong with him. She had to do that 37 times in his lifetime. So you imagine the agony of that mom. And that was the only way she could get treatment. And he ended up dying. You know, uh, a good number of people with severe mental illness died 25 years earlier than their same age peers. Not from suicide, but from deterioration of their physical condition as well as their mental illness. And so we named that legislation Tim's Law, and it was that mom and those, you know, her, her family and friends who carried that message 
every year that we came up with that legislation and we finally got it passed um, on the fifth try. And then the governor, Governor Bevan, vetoed it. And I never had a bill vetoed and it came out of the blue. And our bill sponsor, Senator Julie Rocky Adams, who was a Republican, same party as the governor, texted me and said, the governor just vetoed this bill. And he, I, she said, I had no idea. And I thought, that's probably the lowest point I've ever been at in my career. And my, my first thought was, well, he's gonna be in office the next three years. There's no point in coming back with this legislation because he'll just veto it every time. And she texted me back about an hour, hour later and she said, we're gonna fight it. I said, okay, I know how to do that. So we generated probably a thousand calls to the message line in the next two days. And we had about 50 people dressed in red uh, standing outside the Senate chambers, including Tim's mom and his sister. And I stood up with them in front of the Senate doors and I made sure every Senator who was going into the chamber met them met Tim's mom and his sister so that they knew that there were real life people that were suffering because of this. And they voted to override the veto. And then the House voted to override the veto. So we had a huge celebration party that year and we did not invite the governor to our celebration party. Um, so I still think it's, it's, it's stigma more than anything else that it's ignorance about mental illness and substance use disorders. Yeah, and it's amazing. I mean, that story, I'm sure, was so meaningful for the legislators and also empowering for Tim's mom and Tim's sister to be able to, to speak their truth and, and right. be able to right. make change. So that their fellow NAMI members were so excited. I mean, it became a victory for everybody. And we just got some funding. We got $4 million from SAMHSA to actually put it into practice. We've been waiting all this time for some money to actually roll it out. So that's the other part. You know, sometimes you pass the legislation and you have this big celebration and then you have to wait and wait and wait either for the regs to get written or for the funding to come. So you can't ever, can't ever say that it's done. You know, that's one of the downsides, of this kind of work. You know, there's always can... something. <laughs> it's can definitely see why you celebrate the small victories then. I, I, I think you have to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's again that intermittent reinforcement, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So now I'd like to move into the more leadership-focused questions. Okay. How are you thinking about leadership during COVID-19? And can you think of an example of a leader who's done a really great job during this time? No, um, I really have been thinking about this question and not... My answer may surprise you. I think every psychologist and every mental health professional who has somehow figured out how to get services to their clients during this COVID time is absolutely a leader. I mean, we've had people that have never done services via telehealth, never thought that they would ever have to do that. Um, and have put in the time and the effort and sometimes the expense to learn how to do it, to make it available, uh, to go beyond their own comfort zone, to convince their uh, clients and patients that this is an acceptable way for them to continue in treatment. And they just got the job done. So my hat's off to those clinicians. And it's been tough. I mean, there are some populations of people that um, 
are not probably well suited to telehealth, uh, either because of lack of accessibility. We, you know, we don't have broadband all over Kentucky for one thing, and uh, it's really helped that um, uh, the feds uh, and then the state have allowed platforms even like telephone to be used. Um, and, but we still have people that have don't have a smartphone or don't have unlimited minutes. And so people have had to work around those things. People, uh, psychologists that whose practice like mine was, uh, is basically psychological testing. It really had to be innovative. And we've got a webinar coming up that KPA is doing about psychological testing during COVID. But I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna say that the leaders have been those professional. I really, really love that. Yeah, they have really gone into their discomfort zone, many of them. And their dedication to their practice, to their patients, their clients, uh, some of the stories out of agencies like the community mental health centers where they were doing school-based services and then, you know, those kids dropped off. And the efforts that they have gone through to be in touch with those families and to keep those kids connected um, is really um, historic. I think has really shown tremendous leadership. And a lot of it's been done, uh, Hannah, on an individual basis. I mean, certainly the agencies have have uh, supported it, but uh, a lot of it is taking that initiative, which is part of leadership, and then acting, literally acting, which is another part of leadership. Yeah, and taking the time to learn about the new technologies and how to create a space of privacy and safety for the client. I mean, right, right, absolutely. All so many that. things to learn. <laughs> yes, yeah, and wondering if it's going to work and what happens. Yeah. Freezes and you know all these things and uh, you know some of us are not as tech savvy as some others and you know I mean all of that is is difficult so there's a lot of anxiety around it and people were willing to do what needed to be done. I like that idea that psychologists have really been put in a role to to be leaders, neighbors, and to the occasion. And they're reaching out and and helping their fellow uh, psychologists, you know, Rachel Buner who was doing telehealth before has really stepped forward to help people get used to it, has done some town hall meetings and um, that kind of thing. He's doing a webinar for us on suicides and telehealth um, and really been willing to um, unselfishly share their information with their fellow psychologists, really impressive. You've been a leader in so many different settings. Would you share an example of a great leadership experience you've had? You know, I think the, um, I've mentioned Dr. Judy Worrell, who was kind of a mentor of mine and the one that wrote me into the KPA Legislative Committee. But she really got me thinking about the role of psychology as being a, a resource to policymakers because she was coming to Frankfurt um, to talk about her research in date rape and domestic violence and particularly with college students and so forth. And she uh, not only showed that through her role modeling, but in discussions with her afterwards about trying to translate what she knew as a psychologist and had learned from her research and to make it applicable to public policy. 
So if you think about psychologists, again, I think are uniquely prepared to do that kind of thing, to gather the data and to interpret it and to um, turn it into something useful if you want to look at it that way. Uh, you know, translating it is not always easy. Um, but I think that, that that's that kind of leadership skill. You know, when I first went to Frankfurt, not, not the time with the Mental Health Association, but on behalf of KPA to, to deal with the master's issue, we had done all this research about what other states were doing and all this, you know, pages and pages of stuff about the difference between master's training and doctoral training and so forth. And um, I finally had a chance to meet with the chair of the committee that our bill was going to go to. And he wanted to meet with me at the, in a bar at the Holiday Inn. This is before the days of, uh, of restrictions, you know, for, by the Ethics Commission and so forth. So I checked with somebody and they said, yeah, I'll just keep plying him with liquor. And, <laughs> and I said, okay. That's great. So I, I met him in a bar and I had brought all of this paperwork with me, you know, all this stuff. And of course, that was before the days of computers. So all that had been done on typewriters and you know Xerox and all this stuff. So uh, he was telling me stories about being a basketball coach for many years. In fact, they used to call him coach, everybody that knew him in Frankfurt. And I kept trying to talk to him about psychology and the difference between masters and doctoral and um, going into all this detail. And he looked at me at one point and he said, uh, and what, what's, what's masters? What's this doctoral thing you're talking about? which really brought me up short. And I thought, okay, Sheila, you need to really <laughs> slow down. And it occurred to me that um, even now, uh, most of the legislators were just impressed if you had gone to college. So the difference between having a master's degree and a doctoral degree, which for us was paramount to the whole issue, was really lost on them. And the other thing he asked me was, well, do we have enough psychologists in Kentucky? And of course the answer was no, which really led me to, you know, we can't just get rid of master's people. We can't, we can't meet the needs that are out there. I mean, there is absolutely no justification to say to a legislator, let's just excise these people off the face of the earth. So I guess the lesson I learned was that you have to really meet people where they are and be real aware of where they are. And I think that's a leadership quality. Um, some people may have it innately. I, I really had to work to learn it because I think you, you know, and it, particularly if you're a pretty cognitive person, you just assume everybody is dealing at that cognitive level. And, um, and, and again, Judy was very helpful to me and, and translating what she knew from research to make it um, something that people could kind of wrap their arms around. And I think that led me eventually to this notion that you really have to put a face on it. There has to be a story around it. There has to be something that, that people will remember that makes sense to them. Um, so I think, I think leaders know how to communicate. And that's not an intuitive skill. I mean, some of us are born with better communication skills than others, but to communicate um, 
to make what you're talking about understandable to the general public and particularly to those who are in power, you, you really have to um, stop and think. So I've learned from people over the years about um, how, you, how you do a leave behind that you leave at a legislator's office and there has to be lots of white space and it should be at a sixth grade reading level. Not because our legislators only have a sixth grade education, but because they don't have enough time. And you've got to bullet pointed and you've got to emphasize the things that are the most important. And that's true of email. You know, if I send out an email action alert, if I put five paragraphs of stuff on there, nobody's going to read it. You know, I've got to hit them with uh, two sentences that make it relevant to them. And then I've got to very carefully, but very plainly tell them what they need to do. This is the number to call. Here's your message. Here's who it should go to, literally. You know, so, um, and maybe that's more a mark of um, being an effective leader. I guess there are leaders who are not as effective at communicating, but I think that's a critical piece. And people aren't good, you're not going to have any credibility with people. I mean, the way that you build coalitions and hold them together is that people can rely on you to handle um, the situation with everybody's good in mind. And if they're gonna share with you that you're gonna handle that with respect um, and not disclose uh, confidences that are given to you and that kind of thing. And so, you know, if you do this long enough and you build that kind of thing, you know, I had to do testimony on the effectiveness of telehealth and behavioral health, and I probably sent out 10 emails. I had about three days to gather this information. Wow. And turn it into a PowerPoint. And I have pages and pages and pages of feedback from people, from everybody from, you know, family members through NAMI to uh, all the professional groups who got back to me to... Uh, you know, people in public health who gave me some feedback to, um, and I think because people uh, have a level of trust. So a, a leader has to be able to get the trust of people or you will have no followers. And you really don't have followers. I mean, I used to joke and say, you know, <laughs> I'm always afraid in Frankfurt that I'll talk about the coalition and turn around and nobody else will be there with me. It's never happened yet, but uh, they're not followers. They're they're co-conspirators. They're co-leaders. You have to really respect um, what everybody brings to the table. So if everybody in your coalition is an equal and has an equal right to speak up, then they will feel empowered to speak up to the policymakers. And I think that's and I'm dealing in large part with people with mental illness or substance use uh, disorders, or I have a whole coalition just around disabilities. So people that have um, physical disabilities or hearing and sight impairment or uh, developmental intellectual disabilities. And they have been told over and over again that they don't count. So part of my goal is to make sure that they feel like they have a voice and that their voice will really make a difference. And I absolutely believe that. You know, I, if I didn't believe that, there's no way that I could build a coalition that would hold together because it would just be um, words. 
you know, but I absolutely believe that that makes a difference. And I have lots of war stories about an individual voice making a difference in Frankfurt or, or with the governor or whatever. So uh, I think that's part of leadership. I think it's, it's a bigger vision. It's, it's not about you and it's not about just your profession or your place in life. It's really the bigger picture. And it's um, being an energizer bunny. That's what they call me, you know, so you never give up, you never quit. Uh, I've had legislators say to me, Hannah, I don't, I don't bother to listen unless it's the second or third year and then I know they're really serious. Wow. And you know, that's their experience. And I've known people that have launched huge campaigns in Frankfurt one session and when they didn't get what they wanted, they walked away. You know, they just yeah. let it let it go. And I just, you know, if it's worth doing, then it's worth doing the next year and the next year and the next year. I mean, there are some things like uh, restoring uh, voting rights to felons that we've been working on for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And we just, you know, we're not going to quit doing it. And there continues to be a coalition and the people change because people get old and tired and <laughs> retire and so forth. And the new young you know, people come along and, uh, you know, you have a governor like Governor Bashir who did it by executive order. So there's some, you know, you celebrate that, but you know, you have to get it into a change in the constitution. And that's why we need the legislation. So you keep working on it and you just can't give up on those important issues. Yeah, we need, we need all the people we can get with a fire in their belly who are persistent and well, and if you have that fire in your belly, you will not be quieted. You know, I always open my advocacy training by saying advocacy is education with passion. And I cannot make you be passionate. But undoubtedly, there is something that you're passionate about. And that's what will cause you to raise your voice and to get active. And then through your job and for other reasons, you can, you know, do other stuff. But I, I actually think that you can't be a really, really good advocate without at least a little fire in your belly. You can have it for lots of things. I have it for lots of things. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> right. Yeah, my problem is I need to not get quite so fired up about lots of things. Well, I don't know if that's a problem. It's certainly served you very well, and you've made a lot of a lot of great changes in our state. So, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think that's all the time we have left. Thank you so much for for taking the time to be here today and speaking with us. I I feel like I've learned so much from you, and I'm really excited to share this with our listeners. Well, thank you for the opportunity. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.